Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit Amfem.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing... The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire. Huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, prohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, and welcome to a bonus edition of the Stratycast. I'm delighted to be joined by John Silk, the editor of Even the Defeats, how Sir Alex Ferguson used setbacks to inspire Manchester United's greatest triumphs, published by Pitch Publishing. John, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much for having me. It's a pleasure to have another book author on and to, to speak about the book. And it's a good time of the year, I suppose, with Christmas coming up. Um, people are going to be looking for presents um, to fill their Christmas stockings. Yeah, that was um, pretty much the idea behind um, the sort of scheduling behind the book and the deadline. So it took about um, just under a year to come together. In fact, it was almost a year ago that I started speaking to Pitch Publishing and, and we kind of focused on a following Christmas or the Christmas 2020 to have it ready um, out in the shops and available online. Where did the concept come about? Because one thing when I, when I was looking at the, the book that jumped out at me was the, the way in which the contents read. And it's really clever um, because the, the book is about how, how setbacks led to, to triumphs. And, and you've really yeah. got that with the con- contents page. You know, you, you start off with say things like the, from Anfield Agony to title relief. So yeah. every, every setback was kind of met with a, with a high. Um, where did that concept come about? Because... I, I suppose it's difficult writing a book about Manchester United and trying to find something that hasn't been done before. Uh-huh. Yeah, right. Um, that's that's one of the things. Was There's obviously quite a few Ferguson books out there, and of course, in particular, his autobiographies that have, have been extremely popular. Um, but yeah, this angle, if you like, of, of focusing on defeats um, and the journey from the loss or the setback towards a victory um, was was key really for me and was key to make it a little bit different. Uh, It's also something that, I mean, I think fans as a whole, you know, fans of the most successful clubs, you know, even if it's other clubs around Europe, such as Bayern or Madrid, but I know as a Man United fan and when I speak to other Man United fans, that we do remember, despite all the success Ferguson had, we do remember that that loss, that total loss to Leeds in the last few weeks of '92, which for me as a United fan is the worst 
I've ever experienced and I've um, as a United fan and to be honest with you this is the only real time that I've cried with the exception of when Ferguson actually retired you know um, 20 mm. odd years later so this this theme of, of losing um, despite Ferguson's un, undoubted success we remember Blackburn 95 we remember the the title collapse in, in 98 and also 2012 of course so these big setbacks and, and losing, for example, you know, I use the word setbacks rather than just losses because there were other times in his career, whether it was, you know, uh, when we lost the three big players of Konchelskis, Hughes and Ince in the summer of 95 and questions were being asked about Ferguson then or, or just the general threat that Wenger and Mourinho posed and probably the the only other time that his job was sort of under threat between sort of 04 and 06 during those fallow years. I said the only other time, obviously, uh, apart from the first couple of years mm. at the club. You know, th these are, 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 are these memories burn as much as as the, the victories do. And as much as 99 and 2008 were great, we also remember Ferguson's last year, 2013, Nanny getting sent off mm. or, or Barcelona 09 and an opportunity missed. So these 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 feeling of, of, of oh it could have been more, no matter how successful the club was during Ferguson's period, we always think, hmm, could have been one more. We could have had one more title, we could have had one more Champions League. You mentioned the sending off Nanny sending off against Real Madrid and yep. the question I was going to ask you was what do you think was, was Ferguson's greatest setback? Because that's that one particularly jumps out to me as one that I think really hurt him on a on a personal level. Because his time as manager was coming to to an end in those final years, and he really would have wanted another Champions yeah. League to to gloat about, and I think that really was our chance. And yeah. the the manner in which Nani was sent off, I don't think really any of us would agree with, with with the decision. Yeah, I think um, you're you're right that despite it just being in the last few months of his tenure at the club. I think there are two uh, there are two defeats, if you like, um, or, or major setbacks that, that probably hurt more than most. Um, and I think they hurt us as fans too. But I think you're right. Him. What I noticed when I was when I was researching for the book that every time I I would watch interviews with him and 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 listen and and read stuff and also speak to people that knew him well. Um, you know, such as Ben Thornley, for example, who obviously worked under him for a few years and, and other people. And it was the European uh, or lack of European success, I think, that, that hurt him and, and frustrated him most. And he used words like, you know, misfortune on one or two occasions, um, you know, mistakes, for example, and frustrations with his team's uh, slightly over-cavalier style, for example, which obviously then kind of saw a, a, a switch in, in in tactics, which also gets documented in the book. In fact, as you, as you mentioned before, every chapter in the book, with the exception of the introductory chapter, is kind of a, a journey from a bad moment to a good moment. Mm. And, and those are highlighted also with the European travail. So that where there's one chapter that starts with obviously how how bad things were in the Champions League uh, under Ferguson in 93-94 and the Galatasaray match that we all uh, remember, really. If, if you're old enough and even if you're not, we, we all know what you know occurred over those two legs. And Ferguson used the word complacency in the first leg. I mean, there's nothing worse than, than going out of Europe or, or, or losing a match and you did it because you were complacent. And 
Ferguson knew that that was the reason that they went out after going 2-0 up in the first leg. And all the way through towards the end, uh, so all that journey obviously goes from 93 to 99. The journey is then repeated once again from 2000 when we lost to Madrid to 2008 um, and then winning it. But I actually think you're right. I think if there's two defeats in his um, uh, 26 years at the club, that I think he would would love to to change or to to have a go at again would be Madrid in 2013 uh, in his last few months, and we know how that much that hurt him because I spoke to René Mullenstein, who who did the forward for the book as well, which was great, brilliant, and yeah. he mentioned he mentioned about how basically you know he was inconsolable after the match. We all know he didn't come to the press conference, Ferguson, after that defeat and Nanny sending off. So that really frustrated him, I think, but. What the other result that really sticks out in that respect, and I think there is a slight difference to 2013, will be the Barcelona Champions League final of 2009. Now, the reason that one, I think, sticks out possibly even more than the Madrid one is that the Madrid one was kind of snatched away from Ferguson. And there's almost really not much, I guess, he could have done about it. There's not much he could have done in his preparation. There's not much that he could have changed. 09, I think, is one that, I mean, he says in his autobiography that he wanted the next morning to play the game again. He was so frustrated with how that game panned out. And the game John, panned- John, I think if the game went on for 24 hours, we still wouldn't have managed to get the ball off him. Well, I think you're right, but don't forget that first 10 minutes. And yeah. that's and he also, Ferguson, the reason why that 9 one 6 was is we were favourites going into that final. And, and, you know, Barcelona had been playing very well throughout that season, but we'd won the Premier League. The Premier League was the strongest league in Europe at the time. We were constantly getting three teams out of four. There was this theory that Barcelona hadn't truly been tested until they reached the semi-finals. They played Chelsea. Got the, they got played off the park home and away. They were very lucky to get to the final. And this is a Chelsea team that were way off winning the league with United. So we went into that final really confident. And Ferguson talks about the preparation for the final in terms of um, the hotel choice, the the fact that some players were a bit under the weather in terms of their health because of, I think, some issues with the catering. And and, and I think even tactically, he thinks that that 9 final, far more than 2011, where we were just, you know, we were light years away from Barcelona in 2011. And we, we'd lost Ronaldo by then. And I also mentioned Carlos Quiroz's departure in the book, which I do think had an effect, uh, particularly in Europe. And Patrice Everett backs that up. I do think that 9 was the one Champions League, I think, more than any other. That I mean, that was also an opportunity to, to establish a legacy because the, the Champions League, we never quite had the legacy. Whereas if we'd become the first team in Champions League, you know, since the Champions League's new formation, if you like, in 92, if we'd become the first team to retain it. Then you say, that's the Man United era. You say, 90, you go 2007 semi-finals. You go 2008 winners, 2009 winners, 2010 quarter-finalists and 2011 finalists. You've then got a, a four-year body of work that you can say, that was the United era. Unfortunately, we now look at that era as being the Barcelona era. Mm, absolutely, absolutely. And just, just something to compliment you on the book, the, the tone in which it's written. Um, you can really tell. I think any Manchester United fan that picks up this book will be able to relate with the, your tone throughout. 
Um, and, and just on, you, you do mention in the book, and you know you just touched on it, that Fergie shortcomings in Europe, and it's obviously something that uh-huh. that he looks back on and probably has, has nights of, of regret, and I wish I did this differently, and so on. But what what do you put the, the ultimate reason down for that? We didn't win uh, a third or, or more Champions League under Ferguson. What, what's the ultimate reason for you, looking back? Um, I mean, I, I, I look at it in three periods, if you like, his Champions League forays, and 93 to 99, uh, I think is is there's two reasons. If I, if you uh, give me the liberty of yeah, having a couple, yeah. one um, would be the learning curve. I think it was a learning curve for him as a manager tactically. I think it was a learning curve for the players, and so that took a while to come to grips with. And the second thing in that period would be the 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 foreigner rule. I mean, it crippled United. Um, whether they would have won a Champions League in that sort of six or seven year period, I don't know. But certainly in, in, in the sort of first three seasons of Ferguson, uh, I think it was two or three seasons of Ferguson being in the Champions League that United were, if it was three three seasons in total, it, United were crippled by that final. We all remember the sights of Cantona and, and Schmeichel in the stands as we got smashed 4-0 at, at Barcelona in 95, I think it was, or 94, 94. 94. Um, so I think those two reasons in that period. I think then you have a 2000 to 2008 period. And I think um, there was a period where, for example, when you have a sort of a second going back to school period and and learning once again that perhaps the, the Dwight York, Andy Cole attacking Cavalier football wasn't going to win in Europe um, like it had done in 99, for example. And I, and I think that had to change. But the Vaughan experiment, which is pretty much about that, that was all about, let's go to having three players in midfield. You know, Vaughan didn't work for one reason or another, um, which is, again, heavily doc- documented in the book. Um, so that's probably... And, and then finally, a little bit of in that sort of 2000, 2008, there was probably a period of maybe underinvestment or bad purchases and also of course Wenger and Mourinho coming along at least domestically I think um, had an effect and then the final period so I, I look at three periods in Europe where we weren't successful that led to success 93 to 99 back to school um, and um, and the foreigner rule then 2000 to 2008 again a learning curve and a little bit of probably underinvestment or, or not buying the right players and then finally, 2000 to 2013, it's, it's, it's almost one factor. And that's Cristiano Ronaldo's departure in, well, it was 2009. So I think you can look at United's learning curve, and it was constantly upward from 93 to 99 as they learned the lessons. From 2000 to 2008, it's more of a downward curve and then followed by an upward curve as they, as they recovered from the, sort of the, the, the whole period of, of 2003, 2004. And then the final period is really pretty much downward from 2008-2009 from when Kiros left, but, but more importantly, Ronaldo left. And when, once Ronaldo left, despite getting to the final again in 2011, we were never serious challengers for the big uh, trophy once again. There's a number of references in the book about how Ferguson handled defeats. Um, yeah. Relly Milinston kind of says that he, he took him on the chin, he go up and up and down the gears. Whereas yeah. um, the Times journalist Henry Winter brilliantly describes that he he would do anything to protect the players. Yeah. Um, he would attack the media. He might complain about the temperature of the tea at halftime, <laughs> and so on. Um, do you think that Solskjaer, the current manager? 
a mm-hmm. similar trait. He doesn't come out in the public like Jose Mourinho would have and, and publicly lambast his players. He protects them. But there's also a perception that Ferguson is a bit soft. Now, I, I, I've heard otherwise. I've heard completely otherwise that he has a he has a hairdryer instinct. And it, 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 it seems to me from reading the book and, and reading other books that it's very important that Ferguson had that balance the balance of, of keeping the respect from his players and when to give him a bollocking and, and when to put the arm around them. And it's a very hard balance to, to get. Do you think with Solskjaer there is that balance because the players like him or would you like to see him a little bit more kind of harder when it comes to bad results and bad performances? I mean, again, yeah, Solskjaer, there is this kind of baby-faced assassin thought with him and we see him as an assassin, as a goal scorer but we see him kind of as a baby-faced individual off the pitch. And I think at first, fans, we sort of maybe remember the baby-faced element to his approach to management and that arm around the shoulder. And we remember the first couple of months of his tenure of of, of him just basically constantly saying how well the boys were doing or how well the lads were doing and how they're great and all this. And it was all very much positive vibes as we swept um, sort of nine or ten fairly easy opponents aside with the exception I think of Spurs away in that first sort of two month three month golden period um does he have I mean he I think with with Ferguson and and, and I made a quick note of this as you as you were asking the question after a defeat or on many occasions throughout Ferguson's time he reminded me of a politician and, and, a, and a leader and, 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 a, and a president or a prime minister almost kind of trying to galvanise both the players and staff and fans to get them all singing the same tune, irrespective of maybe even what the truth is or what's really going on. So, so that could be, as, 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 you know, that could be blaming the referee and saying how, he's, how referees are as fit as butchers' dogs. I remember he once said about um, referees in Italy, I, I have no idea if, if butchers' dogs are any fitter than other dogs. But, um, <laughs> But I remember that. And everyone's talking about that after the game. And yet, really, we'd struggle to get a 2-2 draw uh, home to a, a very poor Sunderland side. And, and this was a, a trait that Ferguson would often display. And I think sometimes it was done with thought. Sometimes it was pure emotion. We also remember Bayern Munich away. Uh, sorry, Bayern Munich going out um, in Europe after a def- um, we won 3-2 at home. We went out on away goals. And he comes out and, uh, tip- what does he say, typical Germans. When uh, Raphael got sent off, even though seven of the eight players that surrounded the referee weren't even German, so but we're, we're all thinking about this and we loved it. We yeah. loved it. I've seen a, a, an element which there was once when we, I think it was when we went out to Man City in the League Cup uh, last season, and he came out and he said, and, and Solskjaer tried to sort of distract everyone by by talking about how Man City had brought their strongest team and that we should be we should be complimented by that and. And, and the problem is, of course, is that you can get away with that uh, kind of distraction if uh, if you're sort of generally successful. So if you win a couple of trophies and you don't win another trophy or you lose a match or you have a period of success like Ferguson had for his last 20 years, that really, you know, Ferguson could come out and say anything and it would, you know, it would protect the players. And, and behind closed doors, we know Ferguson went for it. We, 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 we knew that from the ex-players that would talk about it, you know, the hairdryer that I think was Mark Hughes that coined. Solskjaer, the problem is Solskjaer may try to do it, 
But whether he has the same effect on his players, I don't know. It's about finding that balance, John, isn't it, yeah. that I mentioned. And you, you, you touched on Ferguson, the politician, and it, 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 it's a question that I wanted to bring up because it doesn't really touch on it in the book. It's, it's totally separate. But you mentioned yeah. the lack of investment um, in yeah. the latter years, and, and yeah. I want to touch on the 2005 takeover. And yeah. the, the politician that we mentioned with Ferguson, what would you say to claims that, he may or may not have been a champagne socialist in a, in a sense that you're right that he wanted everyone on the same page and he might have covered some tracks with the Glazers. Um, we obviously also have the the, the conversation about the horse um, yep. with previous owners. Do you think that in the long run that, that, that did put Manchester United in a in a bad position? Roy Keane certainly thought so. Yeah, um, it's... It's something. It's a know, tough question. It's not a question any Man United fan wants to be posed. Right. And I know I've I've put you in an awkward position answering it, but but it is something that I think yep. should be discussed. Yep, I, I think there's two questions in a way, or two points uh, over Ferguson that we just we just don't engage on. We never, you never, very rarely hear United fans talk about it. One is is Ferguson and the responsibility he holds for the the takeover and the long term effects, as you mentioned, of that. Um, it's, it's one of two issues that we don't really talk about. And the other is basically, did he leave the squad in the best condition? Um, you know, I remember in 2013, his last home game before announcing his retirement was at Chelsea at home. And I remember his programme notes were talking about, you know, how much rude health that the club was in and the young players and how there was a successful, you know, years to come. You know, Phil Jones was going to be the next Duncan Edwards and all the rest of it. Um, so I think we sort of just try because of, the success that he brought us for 20, 20 odd years, um, we kind of just push that latter point and the former point to we sort of suppress it. I think, but you, it's a great question. Um, do you know regarding the the, 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 the two thousand and four five period when the Glazers came into the club and what preceded it with the horses? I think that there's there's the politician in Ferguson. It reminds me a bit of, I mean, there's many many examples of top leaders doing this, but. But, but certainly Blair, for example, and, and in the late 90s when Blair had to court, you know, talking of champagne socialists, you, you could argue that, that he's certainly the champagne side of socialism, Blair. Um, and, and you would argue that Ferguson, so with Blair you had this, you know, he wanted to court the right-wing press. He wanted to get business people on, on one side. He wanted to do all that whilst also bringing about change. And, 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 and and Blair did bring about some change and some welfare state issues and certainly, you know, uh, other issues, uh, you know, regarding equality and, uh, and, and gay marriage, for example, and, um, and, and, and many other issues that, that, that Blair can, can point to. Um, and yet, uh, he, to do so, he has to get into power. And to get into power and to stay in power, he has to remain popular. And to do so, he has to do certain things that would not be regarded as being socialist. Now, Ferguson, and the, the comparison is here, is, is Ferguson knew that his job was, was in great peril under the, the, the former sort of structure with the horse race owners um, who he had befriended, you know. And, mm. and so now he's in great trouble. I remember a letter, I think it was, that a public letter that the um, the racehorse owners, um, what were their names? The, the J.P. McManus and John Magnus. Yeah, exactly, Magnus and McManus. 
they sent a public letter that was in all the national newspapers, I think, with 50 issues that they felt at the club. I think this will be about summer of 04. Now, the only issue I recall that they mentioned Ferguson in was his health. And so they wanted a one-year rolling contract, which is basically what Ferguson had. It did kind of get Ferguson on side, the one-year rolling contract, because I think Ferguson also wanted an element of surprise to when he eventually retired. So that worked quite well with having a con. I mean, Ferguson knew he had a job at United for life, more or less. But yes, of course, the role that that played in the Glazers then coming to the club and then Ferguson having to constantly protect the Glazers um, because he knew that it was much better for him personally than the previous regime. Um, now, did that have an effect on the long term? Yes, it did. It did have a long term effect. But I think as fans, we kind of forgive Ferguson for that because... Um, he gave us so many fantastic years. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So rather than... We're not angry with Ferguson. I mean, Ferguson didn't handpick the, yeah. the, 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 the Glazers. And so we, we would rather he had criticised them a bit more. Um, and especially in his second book, I think some people might say that Ferguson could have gone for the Glazers a bit more. Others would say he's still employed by the club. So you have this political situation that he had to handle throughout his time. It's something that if I ever, one of my dreams, I guess, would be to have a sit down conversation with the great man. But it would definitely be on my my list of off the record topics, if possible. Um, yeah. But but Ferguson also, there was more fallings out with players, and they've been well documented in the past. The one the one that jumps out to me is Roy Keane because. Uh-huh. You have two fantastic figures in Manchester United history, and I don't know. It, it, it's one that I think kind of saddens me a small bit that they they still don't see eye to eye, and yeah. it, it probably will never happen. The 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 key the key feud was was quite bitter. And um, do you think Ferguson handled that well? I think he did. I think Ferguson did handle it well. I mean, you're right, it does make United fans sad. And we do like Keane. And we even like him today when he goes on Sky and has yeah. his rants. We love it. Um, and we love Keane when he was at the club. And we remember the performance against Juventus more than any other. But that was just one of hundreds uh, that he gave for us. And we really could do with one or two figures like him right now. And we certainly know... Uh, we can think of one or two midfielders at the club right now who would switch uh, in, in the blink of an eye for for Keane and the Keane of, of, of the 90s and early 2000s. But I do think Ferguson handled it well. I mean, um, Did I mean, he push Ferguson, him out, John? Was, was, was Keane coming to the end of his time and Ferguson seen yeah. an opportunity to to maybe make a, a mountain out of a molehill over the MUTV interview and say, right, he's coming to the end. This is my opportunity to, to push him out. Um, and then some people might say if that is true... Is that disrespectful to a really good long-term servant to the club, and and maybe even sorry to counter to counter argument that you have to also put Keane's character into into context that having a player of his mentality who is really pushing on might not be constructive um, right. for a team because we we still know what he's like today. He's he's not someone that I think we would like to manage any football team that we that we like, you know? <laughs> yeah, I mean listen, um regarding make, making the mountain out of a molehill, for example, uh, and, and using that as an excuse to squeeze him out. Uh, one of one or two of the arguments for that might be that I think Keane's injuries were catching up with mm-hmm. him and when he went to Celtic and uh, um he never was probably at the same level 
uh, that he had been at United in the late 90s, early 2000s. Um, so I think Ferguson would have liked to have gradually eased him out anyway. I think you're right over the next six months. I think, but the relationship that Keane had with Kiros in particular meant Ferguson wanted to probably hasten that departure. Um, but I do think, talking of making the man out of the mole with the MUT interview, uh, MUTV interview, uh, Gary Neville, who is as diplomatic as anyone, as you'll find on the subject, especially when he sat next to Keane on a sofa, um, he even says it was horrendous. Uh, you know, Van der Sar, I think, also thought the same. Uh, he's not been quite so vocal about it as, as some people, but um, they do feel it was horrendous. And also, when you're having Keane ranting and raving at your assistant, Kiros, who you believe is, is taking the club forward, I also think there's an element of, of, of how football had changed from the 80s and 90s, and ranting and raving from Ferguson's point of view uh, would be a you know a big mantra towards motivating the players and also getting Keane on board with that. Also, he had no problem with that. And yet, I think in the 2000s, um, he, Ferguson didn't mind in the 2000s players arguing with each other, but he never wanted a his authority to be undermined, and b he never um, uh, you know he had a much more softer approach to management. I mean, I remember something that he said in his autobiography, Ferguson, regarding players at half time when he wasn't pleased with their performance in the first half. In the early years, he would rant and rave and throw the teacups and give the hair dry. But actually, he used to deliver a line from time to time. And I think he said he used it with Paul Scholes, which is that you're better than that. You're better than what you just produced in the first half. So what you have with that line, you're better than that, is you, first of all, you're criticized by it and you feel, okay, I need to improve. But secondly, you're also motivated by it in another positive way because it's like, oh, wow, he really rates me. He knows Mm. how good I am. So... There was this kind of, in the latter part of Ferguson's time, there was the, the, the carrot and the stick, if you like, approach to management. Uh, management. I don't think he thought Keane, as, as his captain on the pitch, had the same thing. There's also the other point is that actually Keane took it quite well um, at the time. The, 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 you know, his, you know he, they paid up the rest of his contract. He got a testimonial. He even came back to the club shortly afterwards, I think, and, and had a cup of tea with, with, with Ferguson and Kiros and Things were were fine for six months. Now, for some reason, at some point, Keane stood on this, and and and, and things actually got worse. I would say, for, you know, years after, rather than the, the the actual moment itself. I've also listened to Keane's account of events, and I've listened to Ferguson's account of events. And when you listen to those two accounts, and you get a pen and paper, and you try to bring them together, and then you listen to the accounts of Gary Neville and also Van der Sar you realise that, that really Ferguson's account does seem slightly closer to the truth than, than, than Keane's. That's not to say that, that I have a problem with, with, with Keane. Of course I don't. And, and, and but we I, love- I, w- I will say, John, that Gary Neville is not going to go against the Godfather. No, you're absolutely right. And I, and I get that. But, um, but when, I, when I listen to how the two accounts were, and Keane doesn't really... Keane doesn't... He, Keane, the, only, the only difference is is how severe was it? Keane thinks it wasn't that bad. Everybody else thinks it was 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 much worse. <laughs> and that's that's the key issue. I, this... I, I guess too, you're probably right because what, what's, bad, what's bad in our eyes probably isn't bad in, in Keane's eyes. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. 
I mean, I think the, the, the thing we, that I mentioned when I, when I said that there's two things that United fans don't dare talk about, you know, which is Ferguson's responsibility for the Glazers and the condition of the squad that he left um, after he retired. We don't really talk about those things, but we do talk about the Keane Ferguson thing because we do feel a bit sad about mm. it. But we also still like Keane and we still love to see him on TV and we still remember his. We can, we can kind of separate the, 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 the departure that Keane had from the club and the memories we have of him as a player. And we, we're, we're kind of okay with talking about it. It does make us sad, but we still laugh when, when, we, when we see Keane on TV today. And even when he's having a go at Ferguson, and, and he, he mentions how in Ferguson's first book, he talks about how you know, Ferguson says Keane covered every blade of grass and, um, and how un- unbelievable monumental he was in Turin that 1999 semi-final. And yet Keane responds to that. He said that, you know, oh, I feel insulted by that. We kind of laugh that Keane is insulted by one of the biggest compliments you could possibly have. Um, so we don't mind, we don't mind Keane even as he is today because we remember what a great player he was. Speaking of great players, in 1989 when Ferguson had his reasons for getting rid of Whiteside and McGrath, that obviously raised, oh. and you touched on this in the book, it raised some big questions amongst yep. the, the fan base. And yeah. when we look back at it now, in 2020, Ferguson's reasons, uh, like I, I can't disagree with them. He, oh. um, the drinking culture needed to be addressed, and in the long, long scheme of things, it was the right decision. Now, can, can you tell me, as someone that was too young to remember remember that that period what the mm-hmm. culture was like um and what argument fans had um against ferguson selling those players i know they were popular with fans they were great players yeah. but, but when the arguments put forward that for the greater good of this team and professional footballers they, they need to have a better um lifestyle like it, for, for me now for me in 2020 it doesn't really i don't see an argument Listen, Ferguson once said, uh, in, it was in his latter years, he said the biggest one piece of advice he would give to any upcoming coach or manager would be to take a decision to, yeah. you know, to, to, and to follow that through. Um, now, that decision might be the right decision or it might be the wrong decision. Only long term, you know, will tell you. But if you feel that that's the right decision is having the courage to and actually courage is a word that Ferguson uses a lot with players, you know, he used to use it a lot with Ronaldo and say how, you know, how much he admired his courage, a courage to get hit by players and, and tackles. And, and he saw a lot of, you know, of George Best in Ronaldo in that respect. But he also saw courage as a vital factor as, as a manager. Now, I think you, you, you've touched on a great issue there with Whiteside and, and McGrath, possibly, possibly, you know, one of the most courageous decisions he made. Certainly, it's up there with the 95 decision to get rid of um, or to sell Kanchelskis uh, in St. Hughes. The difference with that is that there were some other factors involved with the Kanchelskis in St. Hughes sales, um, whereas Whiteside and McGrath was Ferguson saying, and Strachan, you could throw Strachan in there, although the Strachan reasoning was different, but those three were loved by the club. They were seen by the club as being three of the players that actually could take the club forward and actually were probably good enough to be in a championship winning side in terms of talent alone. What we didn't realise as fans, though, was this drinking culture. And probably it wasn't until Ferguson's first book in 99 that it really sort of, you know, Ferguson talked about it in that book as, as the drinking Olympics that, um, that uh, Whiteside and McGraw would regularly conduct. Um, Robson, interestingly, would be a party to those Olympic Games as much as anyone else. 
The difference, of course, with Robson was the consistency with which he performed on the pitch. Um, Whiteside and McGrath, to a lesser extent, were sort of flashes. Now, we remember the flashes from Whiteside, the, the winning goal, none more so in the the, the 85 Cup. Cup final, which was a, a great goal. And I do think there is an element of sadness that from Ferguson with Whiteside probably more than McGrath, although we, we realised the talent that McGrath had, and in fact he had a, a great career at Villa. Um, you know, 92-93, uh, as Villa and United were going to the, for the title, you know, McGrath was probably the best defender that season in the league and, and had been for a couple of years. In fact, McGrath, when the first year McGrath left the club, he went to Villa and he was part of a Villa side that challenged for the title in 1990 as well. And United were way off the pace that year. So it did look like a mistake at first, especially as Bruce and Pallister came in. And Pallister, obviously, his debut, we all remember as being a bit of a disaster and, and arguably his first year or so at the club was not great. But long term, those were the right decisions. And, and Ferguson's ability and courage to take a decision, he would argue, is the most important characteristic any leader or coach or manager can have. Well, it's 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 two sad stories, really. The, the way in which Norman Whiteside's career um, developed, and he he didn't go on yeah. to become obviously the player that we all hoped and the player he could have become if it wasn't for injuries. But yeah. you also have the the sad story of of Paul McGrath, not just his career, but but yeah. but his life. And we had. Yeah. I think it was two years ago we had Ron Atkinson on this podcast and he spoke uh-huh. about spoke about Paul McGrath and his per- and the kind of person he was and you could see real affection in his, yeah. in the way he spoke and I and I don't and I think if if you asked him about it I don't think he'd see eye to eye with Ferguson in the way he handled the situation but okay. as, on top of that Ron Atkinson did stress that a lot was made out of the drinking culture and it was not as bad as as as, as is presented in, in the media or in Ferguson's book. Now, of yeah. course, again, that is his perspective. He was manager and of course he's gonna he's gonna say that. Um yeah. and in the long scheme of things, we, we, we know as Manchester United fans what worked better. And when Ferguson came in it was something he addressed and just on that as well is he, Arsene Wenger, and he's touched on in the book. We'll, we'll get on to that shortly. Yep, yep. He, he's almost seen as the ultimate visionary of, of English football because of what he did when he came into Arsenal and changing the diets and stuff. Yep. But, but Ferguson did this first. Ferguson, yep. Ferguson spotted a flaw in, in the lifestyle of professional athletes in, 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 in top flight football, and he addressed this. And I, I just think it's interesting that Wenger is painted as, as this visionary, um, and it's also forgotten that he only won three Premier League titles. Um, yeah. It's painted as, as, as almost he, he won a lot more. And on that rivalry with Arsenal, obviously we yep. suffered defeat at the weekend. For me growing up, I was, I was a young kid in these days when... Keane and Vieira were clashing and stuff and to be honest it's probably one of it's the highlight of my childhood were, were those games and that rivalry yeah. I absolutely loved it when I watch it nowadays and I just see United fans jogging back to to tackle Arsenal players I I, I just shake my head in disbelief yeah. and I probably sound like Roy Keane with my Irish accent <laughs> complaining but that fixture you have to agree it, it's just nowhere near what it was no the intensity of that fixture from pretty much the day Wenger arrived at the club in 96. Um, I remember the first match that Wenger uh, had as, as Arsenal manager. He brought Arsenal to Old Trafford. Uh, Arsenal were playing good football in his first six, seven weeks. He had an immediate impact on the club. And in United were in big trouble at the time. Um, 
We'd lost three games in a row in the league. We'd also lost our home unbeaten record in Europe against Fenerbahce. And, and those three defeats in a row in the league, by the way, included a, a 6-3 loss at Southampton and a, a 5-0 loss at Newcastle. So we get, went into that game under a lot of pressure, if you like. And the way Ferguson turned that around, that sticky patch, and he did this on many occasions and, 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 and probably... Uh, also, as well, when we lost 6-1 against Man City in his last, uh, his penultimate season, sorry, he also, you know, battened down the hatches and, and turned the club. He could, he could drag the club out of sticky spells um, in his, you know, he learned how to do that, I think. And, and learning, I think, was something that is underestimated with Ferguson. Learning from the bad moments, as in like Wenger and, and, and Mourinho latterly is, is touched on in the book, and, and how he managed to to learn from these guys. And, and I think you're right. Ferguson did come in and, and, and galvanize the club and, and sorry, and, 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 and bring certain uh, fitness issues to the club. And, and in the eighties, you know, did change diets and did crack down on the drinking, for example. However, I do think there were some things that he did learn from Wenger and, and did think, okay, and Mourinho, especially, you know, we all know about Mourinho with the, with the fast starts that his club would, that Chelsea would have, and that they would be over the hill and gone by November. And Ferguson decided to train, change the training measures as a result of that. So he would, he would, that was something in particular in his latter years that Ferguson, we all know how proud he was, Ferguson, but I don't think he would always let that get in the way of making the right decision. Um, and, I, and I think with, with Wenger as well, I mean, I think with Wenger, there's two phases. There's the 96 to probably 05 period where it was kind of 50-50 between the two. I think in that period, uh, you said that, you know, you know, Arsenal won sort of three Premier Leagues. Um, I guess United won three or four during the same period. And so it was fairly nip and tuck. And so it, the, the balance would swing one way to the other. We had Wenger's immediate impact and then we had the treble winning team and the dominance United had for the next couple of years. And then we had the Henri team and the Invincibles and, and it would sort of ebb and flow. And that the, the nature of the games in that period as well, as you, as you highlighted, the, the tension, the nervousness, the, the fact that Man City and Liverpool are, are sort of long-term rivals uh, were kind of just so far off the pace that the focus was Arsenal. And the, the, the intensity of that focus, by the way, is highlighted by Steve McLaren when he said, I remember what it was like at the club in the early 2000s. And, and you know, it was just Arsenal, Arsenal, Arsenal. Mm. And then it would be Wenger, Wenger, Wenger. And I'm, I'm saying the words verbatim that uh, McLaren used um, to talk about that. And the players talk about the week preceding the game and that then obviously went onto the pitch and we you know we, we could be here all day talking about the battle of old trafford in in 03 and how we were centimeters away from stopping that invincible run that that many forget about and and the the aftermath of that and then of course the you know the battle of the pizza or the, or the pizza gate thing with fabregas and stuff and and that that argument in the tunnel but let's not forget the quality as well on the pitch yeah. we're probably talking about the two best teams in europe despite arsenal's Lack of Champions League success. There were various reasons behind that, and I'm sure, uh, as much as we would love more, you know, Champions League success, I'm sure there's um, a few people on the other side of the bridge uh, um, down south where they would love to see, you know, history changed and, and Arsenal doing better. They were in in between probably '98 and 2004, two, yeah, 2006 maybe with Arsenal. You know, they were two European powerhouses and and 
and the quality on the pitch mustn't be forgotten in the midst of the the tension and the and the overspilling of anger. Throughout the book, you talk about rivalry, and I know we just spoke about Wenger, and you've touched on Jose Mourinho. Yeah. Who, who for you was the greatest rival for, for Ferguson in a managerial sense? Because he had Wenger. You know, he, he yep. had he had his clashes, of course, with Rafa Benitez. You wouldn't say he was the greatest, but but it's a memory nonetheless. Who who was the best for you? Was it Wenger? Was it Mourinho? Was maybe someone else? In terms of rivalry, has to be Wenger, um, because with the other you know managers you mentioned, I mean uh, Keegan. You know, obviously, you cannot forget the <laughs> the rant that Keegan. Exactly. I mean, he just even as United fans, he brings a smile and yeah. giggles to our face. You can't like, see my face now; the camera's not on, and no one else can. But I have a big Cheshire grin smile on me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, we don't really have, and I think Ferguson and the players felt the same. I mean, I've heard David Beckham say that you know when he lost it that day, we kind of just went into training the next day and knew we'd won the title. <laughs> And and the way that Keegan delivered that, and, and of course we don't want this to become a Kevin Keegan podcast, but the way I, I mentioned in the book that he delivers that um, that that rant, but it's so funny with the huge headphones he has on that he looks like a backing vocalist to Band Aid, uh, as he as he says that you know we'll we'll love it if we beat them, and he's got to go to he's got to go to Middlesbrough and get something, and I and I say yeah we did go to Middlesbrough and get something uh, the Premier League title. Um, <laughs> Uh, but exactly. So, so with people like Keegan and other managerial rivals he had um, during his time, you know, you know George Graham right at the beginning, I suppose, and and Roy Evans to some extent, and and these other guys during the sort of period until '96, you know, they were they came and went, and Ferguson just swatted them aside from '90 to '96. He just and it, they were gone within. You know, we, we would think, oh, Roy Evans is Liverpool, three at the back, they could pose a challenge. No, um, you know, Keegan seems to have got, you know, Newcastle on the right track and they're playing good football. You know, they could be a problem for, for not just 96, but years to come. No, gone, you know, by or within a year. But Wenger was, was enduring. And the thing with Wenger was there was a huge rivalry between the managers. Mm. Which meddled over the years. It did, but it mellowed once the <laughs> once Wenger was no longer a threat. So I, I look at Wenger in two phases: this kind of '96 to 2004 threat, where you know many times United fans we doubted Ferguson. We thought maybe you know because there was a summer of '02 in particular when when there was this huge transfer spend from Ferguson on Varane and Van Nistelrooy. And and then that and, and Wenger's barely you know touched his purse. You know I'd hate to be going on a night out with Arsene Wenger. You know every time it'd be his round, he'd be in the bathroom hiding, um, because he was spending money like it was his own. And yet he got the better of Ferguson over the sort of following two or three years, uh, albeit with United sort of winning the league in '03. Um, you know there was a fear that, that, that actually Wenger, you know, there, there would be the touchline exchanges before the match, and you would see Ferguson shake Wenger's hand and would be kind of looking towards you know the Frenchman, and Wenger would be looking away, and and Wenger's refusal to go for the bottle of wine afterwards and all the rest of it, it would be like it seemed like Wenger was finally emerging with the upper hand, and particularly with the invincible season of '04 and and United getting worse year on year gradually, that it looked like that, and I think overcoming Wenger. And to, to a lesser extent, Mourinho. And the reason I don't mention Mourinho in, 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 in the intensity of the rivalries, again, it was a bit shorter. It was kind of three years. I think it was kind of from maybe 04 to 07 that Mourinho was there. The, the t- intensity between the managers, despite the, them getting off on the wrong foot with um, with the Porto 
result. There was an element of Ferguson that he quite liked Mourinho. Yeah, there was a respect. There was a respect for Mourinho um, yes. after the after the porting. I think I think he apologised um, after the game, or I think it was was he yeah. shocked that Ferguson went into the, the yeah. Porto's dressing room and he 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 wasn't used to to that in Portugal um, yeah. that, a, that a manager after a defeat will come in and congratulate a team and even after that I, I'd imagine that Mourinho probably felt a little bit embarrassed by the way he behaved um, that night at Old Trafford but it, it, it's interesting because the, the Wenger rivalry the way it, it did meddle and then you go back to, to how how strong it was at one stage. You know, you had two managerial giants in English football who, I, th- I think it would be fair to say, it seemed like they hated one another. It was it was yeah. a proper rivalry, and then they became mates, I guess, with, with maturity, and with, like like wine with f- fine age. Um, yeah. but, but, but look, definitely, just going back to, before we just wrap this up, um, I want to talk about the start of, of Ferguson's reign a little bit. Yeah. And, and the contents of your book, the, the the way they're worded is from the main road massacre to the first trophy. And I just want to yeah. get your thoughts on, on football fans um, and patience for managers because yeah. with Ferguson and with anyone really, in any job, it doesn't happen overnight. And, and, and there was things Ferguson learned in his first few years and I'm sure he took into his successful years too. But but where do you draw the line? Because we we previously had Pete Molyneux on the podcast, and he infamously held the the Tara Fergie banner um, yeah. when he when he thought it was time to to, to call it a day. Yeah. And, and Ferguson still went on and, and obviously became the greatest manager we we could imagine. But where do you draw the line when, when you're looking at Solskjaer now? Where do you stand? Listen, regarding this 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 issue of patience. I, I think there's a couple of things to highlight. First of all, at the first three and a half years of Ferguson's reign at the club, uh, even just directly, you can compare them to, to today, if you like. In, in, and it, you know, you know, we're coming from much further back. We hadn't won the league in 20 years, I guess, when Ferguson took over. Um, we were at one point during that 20 years. You know, we were in the, the second tier. You know, can you believe that we got relegated in that in that period? Um, we'd had occasional cup success, but we were way off winning the league. I think we finished second under Big Ron. Um, I think it might have been 84, 85, but we was we were it was a, a false second. It was almost like when Mourinho got us to second uh, a couple of years back because it, it was just you know it was just a case of a poor league and 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 just being way off the the winners Liverpool and of course that was the thing. So. First of all, Ferguson took over coming from much further back. I mean, if you take over a, a struggling club that haven't won the big the big trophy in 20 years, then you will get a little bit more time to to improve. Um, the second element to your question regarding to the game today and, and Solskjaer in particular, um, how much longer? And, and, you know, things are different now. And the, the, the gap between, say, the, the big spenders and the not big spenders is much bigger. Uh, so that's also another difference between, say, the 80s to some extent that, that you know, you would get, you know, uh, some crazy leagues and, and, and crazy situations. Whereas with the exception of Leicester winning it a few years ago, which we know is a once in a lifetime thing. You know, we we generally know. Uh, you know, losing losing today, and also the way it's magnified with social media. Losing today to Newcastle away one nil, which is the game 
that stuck out for me last season as being kind of the worst moment uh, for Solskjaer when we lost, I think it was November last year, 1-0 to Newcastle. This year, of course, that's been sort of kind of repeated again with with losing to Spurs a few weeks ago in the manner of that defeat. Um, with, with Solskjaer, I have been on the fence, if I'm honest. Um, I think um, he was in a way, kind of fortunate to get the job, obviously, with his links to the club. I do think he's doing some things right. Now, the, the comparison with Ferguson has to be behind the scenes. There was a lot of faith in the things that Ferguson was doing behind the scenes, um, you know, 30-odd years ago in the mid-'80s. And the, and the club and Martin Edwards et al. will say that, that we, we've had a lot of faith in what he was doing. Those same vibes are coming out regarding uh, Solskjaer. It's all about what's going on behind the scenes. The problem is is there's a we don't get quite as much time today. It's magnified a hundred times more because of the intensity and the support across the globe and on social media especially. And you just don't get that kind of time anymore. Um and so do I see a direction? I don't. I don't. Um uh I don't quite know where we're going with this and and I think for example the difference between Ferguson and, and Wenger uh, sorry Ferguson and Solskjaer Ferguson probably would have got rid of Pogba I mean he did it once because he didn't trust Pogba and Ferguson once famously said you know about getting rid of these individuals from the from the dressing room and and I touched on 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 politics earlier and uh, with Tony Blair when he had his problems with Gordon Brown uh, Ferguson just said, get rid of him, get rid of him. You've got to get rid of these people who are causing you trouble, no matter how good they are at their job uh, and how good they are. If they're a cancer within the dressing room, they've got to be got rid of. And I think there's a strong argument to suggest Pogba has been that influence on the club and to a lesser extent, one or two other people. So where do I stand ultimately on Solskjaer? Would I get rid of him tomorrow? No. But do I need to see improvement and see it pretty quickly? Yes. Um, I guess over the course of this season and we'll see where we are come next summer. No, I think that's a, that's a perfect, perfect answer, John. Um, just before we wrap it up then, two questions about, about yourself and writing, and writing the book. Sure. Um, what was your biggest test writing this book? What was the one thing that you thought was, I suppose, stood out as a difficulty or if there was any? Yeah, um, I mean, first of all, it's my first ever book. Congratulations so, on that, by the way. Thank you very much. Yeah, so so getting, getting, having the confidence to do it, uh, I think is 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 huge, and and not really knowing what you're doing. I spoke to many many authors who'd written many many books and uh, took their uh, advice, and that was great. Um, but yeah, I think that confidence and knowing quite where to go with it, and seeing how it evolved, and and certain things did change. I mean, you. You mentioned how this sort of fans view and and I sort of did that kind of evolved as the book you know as the book evolved that kind of kind of appeared if you like and that element of okay we need to yeah there's a lot of heart in this book and I want to make it I, I want the narrative I want to use as much evidence as I can to support my narrative but I also want a bit of emotion in there I mean the game is full of emotion the second the second uh, thing I think in terms of difficulties though again being a newbie to the game is getting the contacts getting the people, um, you know, getting in touch with people who've never heard of you before. And, and that could be that could be in the media, such as Clive Tilsley or Paul Hayward, who didn't know me from anyone before I got in touch and fortunately responded to my calls. But obviously within the game and uh, Rennie Mullenstein, for example, was was, I guess, a bit of luck in a way. I mean, 
I just contacted him on on uh, on social media and and he was a an amazing person to interview. He gave me several hours of his time uh, and then when he you know when he I mentioned this in in the acknowledgments I said the day that he agreed to 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 do the forward for the book you know was the best moment I'd had yeah. as a United fan since we won the league in 2013. Um, it, it was a personal joy moment rather than you know collective or, or, or team joy but I really did feel you know uh, very happy and I'm so grateful that Rene wrote the forward and, and wrote it also with the heart and a lot of good stuff it's just a few pages but but there's a lot of good stuff in that forward and I, and I really appreciate Rene for that but yes I guess I guess getting contacts and and uh, and also of course time constraints I wanted it out for Christmas um on a personal level, I, I had a bit more free time in, in 2020, and not just because of the pandemic, but um, but I did have a bit of free time to do the book. I, I work as a journalist uh, currently in Germany, but I do I did have a few hours per week, so I wanted to take advantage of that. But yeah, I guess those were the main hurdles, contacts, and just being a newbie to the game. Yeah, and for your first book, and I can't stress this more, um, I haven't read, I'm in, in the middle of reading it now, and I, I just think that for your first book, you really do capture um, the whole perspective of a Manch United fan. I think any any United fan picking up this book will, will, will agree with me when I say that. It's, a, it's an enjoyable read, and kudos, really, really good work. Um, finally, I know I mentioned it to you briefly yesterday, and we said we wanted to talk about it. I spoke a few years ago to, to a really good journalist, Andy Mitten, the editor of United We Stand fanzine, and he he made a really interesting point about books, and he's written loads of books about Manchester United. I have two, yep. two of them in front of me right now. Um, he mentioned that how Liverpool books sold really well, and did really well because fans reminiscing about the good old times. And Liverpool, unfortunately, they have ended their ways. They have a league title, they're champions, as things stand. Um are you hoping that Manchester United fans might want to reminisce this Christmas and, and the good old Fargie days? I mean, I'm hoping it. And listen, regarding Andy, I think you know there's not many people out there, especially with, with Man United running through their blood, that knows much more about yeah. publications and, and, and knowing what, what you know, the, the, the pulse of a, of a club and a club like United. I think there's probably very few people that know exactly how that is than than Andy. So his comment about um, Liverpool books doing well during during the time when they were not so successful on the pitch. Yeah, I, I, A, I hope that's the case with my book. And, and B, it's, it's just an accidental piece of fortune, I guess, and probably a reflection of what it is like as a fan that, that I end up writing this reminiscent book during a, a period of, of, of non-success, if you like, on the pitch. Um, I, I think Andy's touched on an excellent point there. I hadn't thought about it. It's just a coincidence or it's actually not a coincidence it's probably just a, a lucky happenstance that that's come about because you know when i'm on social media i see two kind of trends on social media regarding may United. one is kind of frustration with how things are going on the pitch and the other is yearning for how successful it was before so whether it be um various you know uh you know famous fans if you like or, or well-known fans to us in terms of podcasters or or, or, or writers like you, you know yourself for example or uh, authors that are that are posting reminiscent videos of amazing moments and amazing goals and and getting in debates of whether Giggs was you know was as you know it was a legend or or, or should be in an all-time Premier League eleven or or or, or was Skulls better than Gerard? We we're actually that that's the second, but we're doing that from a from a, a, a yearning for for the uh, you know success of yesteryear, and I hope 
that uh, people can enjoy the book from that point of view. Um, but but generically, I mean, I, I just always had this regarding the book. I always had this idea of of going from failure to success, and and I, and I think success is often born out of failure. And I think even in in, in most walks of life, Ferguson mentions it in an interview he gave with um, Liverpool fan Spoonie, ironically enough, where he he mentions basically that 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 failure, you know, being a huge element to to the success that he had, and and a huge drive drive him on. It didn't just drive him on, though. He would learn from the failure. And 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 basically, the theme of the book is, as, as the title says, that I think you know, you, ev- you know, pretty much every chapter, uh, as you as you highlighted, goes from a bad moment to a good moment. Whether it be you know losing five one and the bad era at the beginning of Ferguson's time to finally winning the first trophy, from losing out to Leeds and the pain of agony and tears at Anfield in '92 to winning the league a year later. Uh, and 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 so on and so forth, and, and you'll see that uh, you know throughout the book, and losing the league in the last minute in 2012. I mean, so uh, Paul Hayward highlighted how that defeat hurt hit him uh, and the family as well. That he just couldn't let it happen again uh, in that manner, and he and he spent more time in the in the video analysis room than ever before, and analysing opponents, and that was a a huge factor in in getting the title back in in 2013. Um, I. So yeah, um, yeah. I hope I haven't gone too far off topic with that last question, but but um, that's kind of the theme of the book. And I and yeah, and I, I I hope that that there's many United fans out there that can enjoy this 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 book um, as much as as I did writing it. Where can we get the book, John? So it's available on Amazon. Uh, it's also available on Web Waterstones website. It's also available in Waterstones shops. Uh, a friend of mine actually tweeted the other day a picture of it uh, in uh, Waterstones on Deansgate, for example, in uh, in Manchester. Uh, it's also available on the Pitch Publishing uh, website itself. Uh, you can also follow me on Twitter at Jay Silk, and uh, from time to time, I will uh, you know post tweets and uh, excerpts from the book as well. Brilliant! And there's three of those on StrikingNews.com right now. It's specifically focusing on the feud with Arsenal and Arsenal Wenger so check that out and of course follow John on Twitter John really enjoyed that conversation and thanks so much for joining us on the Stratocast I wish you all the best with your book um, and the people listening please go out and support United fans this Christmas you know shops probably locked down they're all closed but get online and support your own um, John again thanks so much for joining me thanks Dale Sports Social Podcast Network Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.